the first time I saw pornography, I was eight years old, and I went to the local swimming pool, and in the bathroom, someone had left a pornographic magazine. And I remember just this adrenaline rush covering my body and just, just feeling this sense of shame, attraction, feelings I'd never felt before in my life. So I, I took this uh, one picture, folded it up, took it home. Eight years old, the first time I saw porno- pornography. Second time I saw pornography, I was in high school. And I was over at a friend's house, and he said, hey, uh, come into my dad's bedroom. Pulls out uh, a box of magazines and says, have you ever seen any of this? And I was like, I have not. Second time I saw pornography. Third time, I was in my later teenage years, and Pamela Anderson had done Playboy. A friend of mine said, have you seen Pamela Anderson in Playboy? I said, I have not. He said, here's Pamela Anderson in Playboy. My entire intake of pornography was six images in the first 20 years of my life. Now, I want you to contrast that with the generation that has risen up now. Sex in Western culture is a different reality. There was an article making its way around that was in the New York Times, and it was called What Teenagers Are Learning From Online Porn. And in my world, this is very controversial because it, it just, I think it kind of woke some parents up to the reality of the things that their kids were facing. It talks about a class called Porn Literacy with the official title, The Truth About Pornography, a pornography literacy, literacy curriculum for high school students designed to reduce sexual and dating violence. And this is what it says in the article. For around two hours each week, for five weeks, the students, sophomores, juniors and seniors take part in porn literacy, which aims to make them savvier, more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex, relationships and body image are portrayed, or in in case of consent, not portrayed in porn. Welcome to the success of the sexual revolution in our culture. This is a shift and a a participation in sexuality that is unprecedented in all of human history. The sexual revolution and its success. The sexual revolution was defined by Mary Eberstolt in her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, as the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting acts. Destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex. That's what's happened in our culture. Now, this revolution has been very, very effective. If a revolution is an overthrow, this was a successful overflow of traditional moral values. It's safe to say that the Jesus revolution, which happened... Around this time, the Jesus movement, etc., was in many ways defeated by the sexual revolution. Uh, if you were to look at the statistics regarding porn, premarital sex, abortion, divorce, living together before marriage, Christians and non-Christians live almost, not exactly, but almost identical lives. Now, most Christians don't do this with a haphazard sort of attitude. 
They do it with a deep sense of struggle and shame, but they do it. Sex is eating us alive. It's producing shame. It's confusing our sense of authority. It is producing guilt. It's destroying community. It's wreaking havoc on marriages. What is the church to do about this issue in our culture? Well, one of the great lies that we've believed is that all sin is the same. How many of you have heard that before? The, the Bible doesn't actually teach that. Uh, the Bible teaches that, the Bible actually teaches sexual sin is actually a different kind of sin. Everywhere else it says, resist temptation. But when it comes to sexual temptation, it says, flee sexual immorality. It does something to us. Now, the Apostle Paul highlights this in a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he's talking with the church that has a ton of spiritual power, but almost no character. And he wants them to see that the way that you're using your sexuality is destructive and inappropriate because it's actually deforming you out of the image of Jesus and distorting you into the brokenness of the world. Listen to what he says here. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I won't be mastered by anything. You say, food's for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Now, this may be the controversial thing that I say tonight. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know, apparently not, that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, I had a professor when I was taking an ethics class in seminary, and he said that this is one of the most fascinating passages about formation in the Scriptures. And he articulates that the term body, it's a Greek word, sarx, it's translated here, in this context is best interpreted the self. He who sins sexually sins against themselves. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who's in you, who you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So when we sin sexually, we're sinning against ourselves. We're bending our will and our heart and our bodies and our desires and our emotions away from the purposes of God towards the destruction and dysfunction we see in our culture. Sin has enough combustive force in the lives of Christians to incinerate conscience, vows, family commitments, religious devotion, and anything else in its path. And so we're left in a moment, culturally, where the sexual revolution has changed us all. Mary Eberstadt again says, first in contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women. And second, its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in society, even as it has given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory. Maybe you're here tonight, and this is your first night back at church for a while, and I just thank you for coming. And uh, you, you, prob you either came because you knew we were talking about this or you had no idea and you're like, what have I got myself into? But I do just want to say this before we talk about our responses. I am not here to produce shame. But this is a reality that almost 
everybody wrestles with. And so we have to have biblical clarity. And so tonight I want to talk about how followers of Jesus are formed sexually through God's good gift into the image of Jesus. Now, when you get to these issues we've been talking about, there's normally two overreactions to the effects of the sexual revolution that we see in our culture. The first response is a response of fear. And this is on one side, the overreaction that many Christians have taken to the issue of sex. Sex is something, sex is bad, it's something to be avoided, it's something to stay away from. This is one side of the continuum. And I think there may not be anybody in history who has more tangibly demonstrated the issue of fear than Jerome. Jerome was probably the greatest Christian scholar in the world by the time he was in his mid-30s, and perhaps the greatest figure in terms of Bible translation. He spent three decades creating a Latin version that would be the standard text for more than a thousand years. But he struggled with lust. This is what he says. I was plagued by sexual fantasies. I often found myself surrounded by bands of dancing girls. He fasted to the point of starving in an attempt to control the temptations. My face was pale with fasting, but though my limbs were cold as ice, my mind was burning with desire. And the fires of lust kept bubbling up before me when my flesh was as good as dead. And so he was wrestling with this temptation. He was trying to do with his body what Jesus says in this verse, but realized the issue was actually his heart. So instead, he turned his passions to studying Hebrew as a form of sublimation. His scholarship resulted in the Vulgate that was used for a thousand years, but it did little, all of this energy did little to transform his attitudes towards sex. He began to assign spiritual values to women, 100 for virgins, 60 for widows, and then 30 for those who were married. And he ranked marriage just above fornication. He said, I praise wedlock, I praise marriage, but it's because they produced me virgins, he said. And he proceeded to give prison-like rules to the mothers who raised these virgins. To husband, he declared, anyone who is too passionate a lover with his own wife is himself an adulterer. And this fear crept inside the church. In the succeeding centuries following church, authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on Thursdays, the day of Christ's arrest, on Fridays, the day of his death, on Saturdays in honour of the Blessed Virgin, and on Sunday in honour of the departed saints. Wednesday sometimes made the list too, as did the 40-day fast periods before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost. Also the feast days, the days of the apostles, as well as the days of female impurity. One pope assigned a painter, Daniel the Trouserer, in the Sistine Chapel to clothe the nudes, Another rule that all priests must be celibate. The list escalated until gay theologian John Boswell has estimated there were only 44 days a year which remained available for God-blessed marital sex. This negative attitude basically produces a formula that looks like this. Moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. But it hasn't really worked. It didn't work then. And it's not working for most of us. Philip Yancey says this, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, denominations issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. 
Surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. So if we were going to be really honest, the formula looks more like this. Moral standards plus willpower equals failure. That's what this has produced. And it's also produced shame, and it's produced guilt. So that's on one side of the spectrum, a fear of the power and dangers of sex. On the other side of this, you've got people in our culture, and they are just sexual libertarians. They're just total freedom. Do whatever you want. And this is the other response. This is, in our culture, sex positivity, a phrase that was coined by Wilhelm Reich. The sex-positive movement doesn't, in general, make moral or ethical distinctions between heterosexual or homosexual sex or masturbation regarding these choices as matters simply of personal preference. Sexologist Carol Queen says, it's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions on a different medium, that instead of having two or three or even half a dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. And the response here is like, why are you so uptight about sex? It's just a natural appetite. You get thirsty, you drink. You get hungry, you eat a vegan kale salad with organic chickpeas. <laughs> You're aroused, you have sex with someone or you masturbate and if porn helps, that's fine. It's just a desire. So the formula on this side of the continuum is desire plus consent equals freedom. But I look around and I ask the question, really? Are we more free? Are we more fulfilled? Another article in the New York Times called What's Lust Got to Do With It? It was written by a woman who was just so confused why so many single women kept having sex with men who were losers they didn't want to sleep with. And as a result of it, in this article, when she goes on and writes a book, she says this, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard, she tells me. We portray it as fun and we pretend it's fun, but people crave intimacy, which is not easy to create in a hookup. That's why Britain just appointed a loneliness minister. And I was like, hang on, England has a loneliness minister? But they do. All of the sex, all of the freedom isn't producing bonding and connection. It's producing loneliness. The only reason the United States doesn't have one is because we can't afford one right now. <laughs> Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body, Required Reading, says this, the same bleak view of sexuality is inculcated even in young children. A video put out by Children's Television Workshop, widely used in sex education classes, defines sexual relations as simply something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. No mention of marriage or family or even love or commitment. No hint that sex has a richer purpose than she essential gratification. So it's my take that the formula that's offered to us through the freedom paradigm actually looks like this. Desire plus consent equals disillusionment. We're a deeply confused society, oversexed and completely confused as to what it's supposed to do. I once heard Bill Johnson say this. By the way, this is the only talk where you hear Boswell, a gay theologian, and Bill Johnson, a Pentecostal minister, <laughs> in the same passage. But Bill Johnson said this. It was fascinating. When you get rid of the creator, and this is the argument of Romans 1, when you get rid of the creator, you get rid of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of purpose. 
When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of accountability. When you get rid of accountability, you get, you get rid of the need to answer for your choices. When you get rid of people giving an account for their life, you remove the fear of God. And it's the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom. And when you have no fear of God and no wisdom, all you're left with is total confusion. And this is the moment we find ourselves in as a culture. So somewhere between this paradigm of fear of human sexuality and on the other side, this vision of freedom where you can just do whatever you want, Jesus inserts his controversial self. Jesus' vision is both in the beauty, though power, of human sexuality. Jesus offers us discipleship in this area and a vision of sexual formation. The way of Jesus doesn't just put forth morality, here's what you should do. It asks the question, who am I becoming by living in a certain pattern or way? It asks us about our motives, our habits, the direction and the formation of our hearts and lives. So this is what we see with Jesus, not fear and not freedom, but we see formation. And I wanted to show you a passage here. Paul's trying to pastor another community in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians. And this is what he says to them about sexual formation. Let these words wash over you in a fresh way. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that, In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God does not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, this is a rich text we could spend a month in. But I want you just to see two things primarily. Sexual formation is about learning control and it's about submitting to the Holy Spirit. There's a part we do. We learn to control our bodies and our desires and the Spirit leads, guides and empowers us as we do this. All the warnings in the Bible around sex are designed around the idea that sex is good and it's seeking to protect something that is both powerful and fragile. It's not designed to repress freedom. Well, how do we learn to control ourselves and submit to the Spirit? Well, the first part of this is actually having a vision of what Christian sexuality is. For a culture that is absolutely obsessed with sex, that uses it to sell everything from hamburgers to hairbrushes, have you ever asked yourself the question, what is sex? What are we doing here? Is this just like, biological instinct that we just like basically mammals with bonus bits this is what we do this is how it goes well christian sex and christian sexuality is actually based on four pillars that i'm not going to have time to get into tonight if you come back next week (laughs) we'll do a bit more work on it but there's four things that i think are fundamental and baseline number one is that sex is actually pointing to the to a greater reality it points beyond itself to the story that we actually long for In your heart, what you're groping for in your sexuality, when you're reaching out with desire to somebody else, is you're wanting to be able to give yourself fully and to take a hold of somebody fully. You want to be fully known and fully accepted for who you are. In the Garden of Eden, 
They were naked and not ashamed. In our culture, we're naked and ashamed. Even though we've got our clothes off, we're still hiding because we're terrified by rejection. But the gospel is the only story, and it's the true story, of a God who sees us as we are and loves and embraces us and fully accepts us in Jesus. And it's the only story where we can be honest before him and receive acceptance and grace rather than condemnation and rejection. And sex is a physical reminder that that union that we ache for and at its best consummate points us beyond us to the true story that we are a part of. In the book, Rooms of Another World, we read, the very word sex comes from a Latin verb that means to cut off or sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow the union that's been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within as a longing for union with a parent. Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex. The Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. So your spirit, as you drive towards another person, is actually driving itself for unconditional love from God. The second thing it does is it, is it gives us a vision of holistic integration. Most of the sexuality in our culture has chopped up sex as a whole and just chopped it into bits. It's, it's what the French sociologist Jackie Alor calls technique, an obsession with sexual technique. When we get rid of intimacy and a holistic vision of sex, heart, soul, mind, strength, whole life union, and we chop it up to just the physical nature of it, all we're left with is an obsession with sexual technique, which detaches sex from its function and purpose. That's why we live in a culture where people are obsessed with sexual studies, sexual manuals, sexual videos, none of which actually address the deep core longing and pain. In the movie A Brilliant Mind, the beautiful but socially inept mathematician John Natch approaches a beautiful woman in a bar. You may remember this scene. And he says this, look, listen, I don't have the words to say whatever it is that's necessary to get you into bed. So can we just pretend I said those things and skip to the part where we exchange bodily fluids? To which point she slaps him across the face. Because we know you can't just reduce it to a physical technique. Sex is actually meant to be a picture of whole life union. Heart, soul, mind and strength. Other-centered, sacrificial love. And it's about a holistic integration, not the fracturing or splintering of, success, of sex. That's why in our culture, all of the sex is, is making us lonelier rather than happier because it separates the deeper issues of it. The third thing is that sex is tied to our transformation. Now, look, I know there's a point of tension here. And Christianity actually preaches a chaste tension. But we believe that saying no, resisting or pushing back on just giving into our natural desires actually has the capacity to produce deep spiritual growth and profound character transformation. And it can repress the worst in us and release the best in us because it points us towards love. It's about self-control, self-respect, learning to think of other people. Now, I know this can be tempting when you're looking out at the world and just seeing your friends having what looks like a lifestyle of spring break. And you can just think, gosh, I just wish I could let myself go. But the tension not to is actually forming your character, while the giving in to pleasure is actually deforming character. It is chasing our instincts rather than training our instincts. And one of these pathways leads to sacrificial love. The other one doesn't. And then lastly, it's a witness to the world. It's meant to be a picture of Jesus and the church. The church is supposed to be a counterculture of respect and love. 
It's a culture where people aren't commodified. It's where we look below the surface judgments that we make in our culture. We are supposed to be a counterculture of sexual wholeness in a world of sexual brokenness because God is a restorer who makes his people whole. The early church, it was said about them this. This is one commentator. Christians marry, as do all the others. They beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring. And they have a common table, but not a common bed. They care for their kids. They're hospitable. And they're sexually faithful. It was a witness to the world. Now, I've mentioned this before, but the only way that you could really know that Jesus is back from the dead and you have eternal life is that you're sexually pure and you're financially generous. Because our whole culture, if that's not true, is about getting as much as you can. And a willingness to forego and to share means that you really believe there's another life, not just this one. We're a witness to the world of the resurrection. Now, in light of these beautiful, pithy, compelling, short vision uh, of Christian sexuality, a beautiful story, a holistic integration, an opportunity for transformation, a counterculture witness to the world, I'm sure that you have no struggles in living as a holy, disciplined people in our culture. The problem is, though, that according to the questions you emailed me in for the Controversial Jesus series, there may be a few tension points that need addressing in the issue of sexual formation and the struggle that we face. So I'm about to preach on porn, masturbation, dating, and premarital sex because you asked me to. So let's begin by looking just loosely and quickly at this issue here of porn. I know of no other struggle that plagues and produces shame for both men and women, the issue of pornography. Jan Meza, who gives a little commentary, talks about how porn distorts us. At the end of her quote, she says this, porn is a sickness. And this is what it is. It's when our healthy sexuality is distorted and it becomes sick. Chris Hedges, in his phenomenal book, Empire of Illusion, says the largest users of internet porn are between the ages of 12 and 17, and porn producers increasingly target adolescents. Porn targets the mid-teens to the mid-20s and up. The number one searched porn term in the world is the phrase teen. So this is the culture that we live in. So this is the first time that a generation of young people have been raised by marinating their brain in continuous violent images of misogynistic sex. And this, this has tremendous, tremendous formational impacts. It impacts ourselves. It actually rewires our brains and our neural patterns because sexuality produces dopamine, a part of the reward center of the brain. So you see sexual activity and you get a reward. Dopamine's released and you're like, yes, I've done something. But like all addictions... The same images don't continually produce it, so you go searching for more images. And the reward images, the reward center is closely associated with violence and competition. And when that regular porn doesn't work, you see porn getting increasingly violent, and the brain begins to fuse these two images together, that in order to be sexually aroused, it requires violence towards women. And kids are raised where this is a part of their thinking. It affects our sexual tastes. The brain's reward center doesn't know the difference between porn that's acceptable and porn that's not cool. And so neurologists use the phrase, what fires together, wires together, until our pathways associate sex and violence deeply in the adolescent brain. Porn impacts our relationships. 
It changes what we want in people. In a recent study of 16 to 18 year old Americans, nearly every participant reported learning how to have sex by watching porn. And many of the young women said they were pressured to play out the scripts their male partners had learned from porn. They felt badgered into having sex in uncomfortable positions, faking sexual responses, and consenting to unpleasant or painful acts. Porn's distorting our culture. It's producing depression in women and men, deep amounts of addiction, and 60% of all marriages that fall apart, 56% of those people in those marriages are addicted to porn. We are feeding misogyny, and there's an intersectionality between sex trafficking, violence towards women, rape culture, and pornography use in our world as a whole. We are being deformed and shaped away from the image of Christ. John Paul II says this, there is no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. Technique. In short, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but rather that it shows far too little. You don't see that person as a person. That person is there as an object of pleasure. And so obviously you can just see that just like just watching hours and hours and hours of violent pornography is going to shape the way you think, what you want, how you love, and how you enter into relationships. Deeply, deeply formative. And pornography is normally associated with another behavior called masturbation, which is the next point. Now, the Bible doesn't actually address the issue of masturbation. It's not in there. And there's this passage in the Old Testament that's actually about an Old Testament form of marriage. It's not about masturbation. But C.S. Lewis does address the issue of masturbation. So <laughs> we're going to go with my boy C.S. Lewis tonight. Now, Augustine of Hippo, one of the church fathers, had a definition of sin that he called, sin is love turn in on itself. And the Protestant Reformation, we talked about this phrase, incurvatus, a collapsing in of self-desire. And in some senses, that is, love is fighting this tendency to collapse within ourselves. So this is C.S. Lewis on masturbation. Now, to give you some context here, he's writing a letter, obviously, to an American, and it's to a younger man. So the terms are all male-oriented, and they're all, obviously, heterosexually oriented, but you, you get the context of what's happening here. This is what he says. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another. And finally, in children and even grandchildren and turns it back, sending the man back into the prison of himself there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among these shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness. No mortification is ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. He continues. It is not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. The true exercise of imagination, in my view, is to help us to understand other people, to respond to, and some of us, to produce art. But it also has a bad use, 
to provide for us in shadowy form a substitute for virtues, successes, distinctions, etc., which ought to be sought outside in the real world, e.g., picturing all I would do if I was rich instead of actually earning money and saving. Masturbation involves this abuse of imagination in erotic matters, which I think bad in itself, and thereby encourages a similar abuse in all spheres. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of our little dark prison we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. So, as I said earlier, Christians aren't just asking the question, what am I doing? They're asking the question, who am I becoming? And how am I being formed by doing this? He has three concepts that are standout concepts in this quote. The harem within, abusing the imagination, and loving the prison. And love, according to the Bible, is channeled towards others. Ephesians 5.3 says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. So our mind filled with porn, with relationships that are not real, based on money, and then you're feeding your mind, wiring your brain to be sexually aroused and masturbating to images of the violent abuse of women, just takes you deeper into your darkness rather than leading you out into freedom. So does the Bible say you shouldn't then? The question you have to ask yourself is, who am I becoming and how am I being formed by doing this? Now this then, porn to masturbation, leads to how we enter into relationships. This actually impacts our vision of dating. Now again, dating is not in the Bible. So this is an issue of wisdom. I can't point to a verse and give you Jesus' teaching on dating. They didn't date at that time of history. In fact, dating... It traditionally comes from the 18th and 9th centuries where marriages were arranged. Then it emerged out of arranged marriages into courtship. It moved out of courtship into the concept of dating. The word dating appeared for the first time sometime around 1914. And here's what the major change was. The young man didn't so much come as in courtship to the family to be approved and evaluated in terms of skill, suitability and character. But now the young man took the woman away from the family and instead, it was based on romance instead of friendship, spending money, being seen, and having fun instead of character assessment. This inevitably led to hookup culture, which leads to apps. Now, I've never been on a dating app <laughs> in my life. So I talked to a friend this week at an event I was at, and she said, dating apps are like Amazon Prime to deliver you hot people. So I didn't know if she was exaggerating, and then I remembered this article from a few years back from Vanity Fair, not a Christian magazine, <laughs> called Tinder and Hookup Culture Promotion. And I want to give you just a few selected readings from this. This is staggering. There have been two major transitions in heterosexual mating in the last four million years. The first was around 10 to 15,000 years ago in the agricultural revolution when we became less migratory and more settled, leading to the establishment of marriage as a cultural contract. And the second major transition is with the rise of the internet. 
Are you confused? It's because this has only happened one other time in the last four million years. But who are we becoming by participating in this? Guys view everything as a competition, says one man. He elaborates with his deep, reassuring voice. Who slept with the best, hottest girls? With these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them, so you could rack up 100 girls you've slept within a year. There's the concept of the Tinderella, a girl you meet and land before midnight. There's the concept of the Tinder king, a guy who can get a woman into bed with a very strong text game or maybe only using emojis. One guy says, I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of a guy in order to win them over. Then they start wanting me to care more and I just don't. It's like ordering seamless, but you're ordering a person. It's rare for a woman of our generation to meet a man who treats her like a priority instead of an option. One girl says, they start out with, send me nudes, says Reese. Or then they say something like, I'm looking for something quick within the next 10 or 20 minutes. Are you available? Okay, you're a mile away. Tell me your location. It's straight efficiency. Now she's talking about men in Manhattan. If he texts you before midnight, he actually likes you as a person. If it's after midnight, it's just for your body. One guy, I hooked up with three girls thanks to the internet off of Tinder in the course of four nights, and I spent a total of $80 on all three girls. Nick, with his lumber sexual beard and hipster clothes, as if plucked from the wardrobe closet of girls, is physically speaking a modern male ideal. That he fulfills none of the requirements identified by evolutionary psychologists as what women supposedly look for in mates, he's neither rich nor tall, he also lives with his mum, doesn't seem to have any effect on his ability to get rampantly laid. In his iPhone, he has a list of more than 40 girls he has had relations with, rated by one of five stars. It empowers me jokes. It's a mix of how good they are in bed and how attractive they are. I had sex with a guy and he ignored me as I got dressed and I saw he was back on Tinder, said one woman. And then finally, a few, girls, women admitted, a few young women admitted to me they use dating apps as a way to get free meals. I call it Tinder food stamps. Now look, look. I know that some of you are currently deleting an app. Can I get your attention back, back up here for a sec? Um, No, honestly, I know that if you're really trying to follow Jesus, this is not what you're after. But you have to know that when you go into those environments, how terribly formative they are. They are designed to manipulate your emotional state, to release dopamine, to addict you, to build false senses of security and worth. And it is a person of Christ-like strength who gets in there and resists it all and finds a godly spiritual partner. I'm not saying it can't happen, but as Christians, we ask the question, who am I becoming by participating in this practice? Most people today date out of three primal reasons, loneliness, sexual desire, or pride. So I just want to be with someone. I don't know what to do with my boredom. Or I'm just, I'm just really fired up right now. I need to release this. Or I wonder how many people I can get so I can build my self-esteem. But what these practices do, and I want you to see this, is they form our ability to evaluate relationships away from the way that God calls us to evaluate relationships. 
C.S. Lewis is back. This is what he says in his book, The Four Loves. He basically talks about four kinds of loves. He talks about eros, which is erotic love, storge, which is sort of like nostalgic, if enjoyable love. And he talks about philia, which is basically where we get the term Philadelphia. It's like a friendship kind of love, brotherly love. And then we get agape, which is other-centered sacrificial love. And in our culture, in a dating app culture, what we're formed into is to viewing people erotically and then trying to get some fun out of them. And after we've had sex with them and had a good time with them, we ask, should I build a friendship with them? And then if they're like pretty friendly, you're like, maybe I should get into a relationship with them. It's forming our loves. But when you're formed by Jesus and his people, this should be reversed on its head. The first filter you have should be, how do I posture my heart as sacrificial love? Ephesians 5 actually says, husbands, agape your wives. And then we ask the question, how do I build a friendship where I care about this person and I commit to this person and I have a lot in common? And then how do I really begin to enjoy them? And ultimately this leads to sexual consummation in the relationship. But when you reverse the loves, you commodify people. When you restore the loves, you value them. And we need in the church culture rightly ordered loves. One of the things my wife asks all the time, looking around our church, why are there so many beautiful, successful, godly single women? And I respond because men have been formed by our culture to evaluate them by one factor. Are they hot? And so as a result, men literally don't have the capacity to see the possibility of these beautiful women who are around them. And often in their loneliness, they resort to porn or hooking up, which creates cycles of shame, which further alienates them because now the women seem intimidating. We need a different dating culture in the church. So we have to have a vision. Who am I becoming by participating in this? So John, is it sinful? Wrong question. Am I becoming more wise? Am I being formed more deeply? Am I seeing people how Christ sees them by participating in this culture? And this ultimately then, dating leads us to the category of premarital sex and living together. Now look, the, the, the things I'm teaching here are for followers of Jesus Christ. If you're just like, you got dragged here tonight and you're like, whoa! <laughs> just use this to try and understand what it is that Christians believe, okay? So these are not, I'm not making moral judgments about your life, but I am trying to bring clarity as to what Jesus expects from his followers. Premarital sex and living together form relationships that Jonathan Grant in his breathtaking, why haven't you read it? I beg you, I beg you. Read his book, Divine Sex, says this. He calls these relationships of living together subprime relationships. If intimate relationships were mortgages, we might call these subprime commitments. They are high risk projects with little or no collateral security. Unfortunately, just like subprime mortgages, these relationships are designed to fail. And he gives some stats only one in five cohabiting relationships end in marriage. Cohabiting significantly increases the likelihood, likelihood of divorce. Women who cohabit multiple times before marrying divorce more than twice as frequently as those who only live with their future husband. Serial monogamy, 
that is the string of consecutive sexual relationships, actually hinders eventual marital satisfaction, while sexual experience before marriage is a good indicator for the increased likelihood of infidelity within marriage. And honestly, this makes total sense. Because if before marriage, as a believer, you are consciously resisting temptation and channeling your drive towards other-centered love, when you're in marriage, you have practice for doing this. This is called covenantal monogamy. But if you spent your life cultivating the fulfillment of your desires, the ability to rein this in becomes very, very challenging. You literally haven't developed the instincts, capacities, pathways, or patterns to make you faithful in marriage. Now I'm bringing Tim Keller into it. Tim says this, <laughs> when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much more of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person for that? The marriage vow is not just helpful, but is even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, the person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say, I don't need a piece of paper to love you is to basically say, my love for you has not reached the marriage level. Now, when we're talking about followers of Jesus inside a Christian community doing this, there's a concept which I want to haunt you. And this is the concept, committing sexual fraud. Sexual fraud is to promise with your body that which you will not pay with your life. And this is what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. Do not take advantage or wrong a brother or sister with your sexuality. So my take then, as we move towards the close, I didn't say I'm closing, I said as we move towards the close, <laughs> is a vision of sexual formation. So I've given you these other formulas, morality plus willpower that doesn't work, and consent plus desire, which doesn't work. Here's my vision of what Christian sexual formation looks like. It's about a vision plus the power of the Holy Spirit, plus godly practices that result in our restoration into the image of God. We get this vision of what sex is and what it's designed to do. We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, which, who's within us, producing the fruit of the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, not grieving the Spirit, acknowledging that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and then we begin to pattern our bodies in ways that delight, not grieve Him, and practices that become boundaries where our love is channeled towards restoration. That's why in Romans 7, 6, it says, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. So this vision plus power plus practices brings about our restoration to the image of God. Now, this has to happen on two levels. Number one, it happens in individual spiritual formation. You personally have to choose and understand what has formed you sexually, and then you have to submit yourself with a new vision and new power and new practices to how you will be reformed sexually. But I've got to be honest with you. This isn't easy. Every choice we make about sex involves a kind of suffering. Because at some point, you have to renounce desires. This is a part of taking up your cross. But this has the possibility for deep transformation. Jean Fenet, who's a Catholic writer, says this, A commitment to purity is a sign of hope 
an effort to bring personal order into a disordered world. Purity can be sought as a celibate single person or as a married person. Either state involves loneliness and sometimes anguish as well as hope. But blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, Jesus promised. Note the extent of the promise. Not that they will find complete sexual fulfillment and solve all loneliness, but that they will see God. So here's the chart that we see. I mean, individual formation, next, looks, looks like this. You've got fear, and then you've got fascination. But on the other side, the next slide here, look at this. That's actually, I think, what it really looks like. <laughs> like, honestly, this is, this is messy. This is hard. But we are learning as people to create a counterculture, at least within our bodies, hearts, minds, where no matter how much there's craziness out there, we will have rightly ordered hearts and loves that we are formed towards love towards God and love towards neighbor that promote their flourishing and not just personal satisfaction. We need this. But secondly, we need to be a church community of both discipline and delight. So we have to put boundaries up as a community. And I'll get into this more next week, talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's not our job to tell the world how to be the world, but it is our job to help the church be the church. And so we have to have an alternative culture of dating, a different vision of sexuality. We have to break generational cycles that flood themselves in and replace it with blessing and wholeness. We need to reclaim friendships. We need to widen the seats at our table. We need new celebrations and rituals where we support one another in our calling to follow Jesus faithfully in our crazy world. Carnal friendships are based on affinity or fun. Worldly friendships are based on usefulness, how we help each other, but spiritual friendships are designed to help us fulfill our call in following Jesus together. And we have to cultivate these rich friendships. Now, oh, all that, oh, by the way, this is good. I'm glad I didn't skip this. We need those boundaries of discipline, but the church should also be a place of total joy and delight. Because it's actually joy. It's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. And it's joy that suppresses these base instincts. Listen to this. This is literally fascinating. Neurobiologists have shown that while most brain development stops sometime in childhood, the brain's joy center, by the way, did you know you have a joy center in your head? The brain's joy center, located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex, is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. As Dr. James Friesen and his colleagues explained, when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. And it's the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers. Food, sexual impulses, terror, and rage. Without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill that deficit. So I want to, I've actually met with the leaders of our church and I've actually changed my title from lead pastor to joy center cultivator and overseer at Church of the City in New York. I want to have a church filled with joy. I honestly want people to step in and say, there is life here. I don't need what the world has because in his fullness, in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand, pleasure forevermore. This is better than a club. This is better than sin inside the community life because that joy represses ungodly sexuality, represses our fear. So the church would be a place of disciplined practices and delight and joy. 
And those things to me sound like a culture of life and a sexual culture of death. Okay, I am closing now. As I close, I want to say this, that many of you have just been sitting here with just like an ache in your stomach. And maybe you're here and the enemy's just like flashing images in your head and he's maybe reminding you of stuff that you've tried to forget. And honestly, you're just like, I am such a sexual failure. Like, I'm never going to be able to sift through this stuff and sort it out. Maybe you're a victim of sexual abuse. Maybe it's promiscuity. Maybe it's things you've chosen, whatever it is. But you're just like, honestly, if I bring myself to God, will he receive me? But then we look at the Gospels and we come back to where we started week one, which is the controversial compassion of Jesus. Jesus has compassion for the struggle of human sexuality. Look at what he did for the woman at the well. The woman at the well was a Samaritan outcast with five five failed marriages and a live-in husband. And what does Jesus say to her? He basically asks her, how's that working out for you? Do you want living water? Because I've got that. And she says, yes, I've been looking for it all my life. Give it to me. And he says, I am the living water. If you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. That longing that you've been looking for in men will be saturated and satiated in me. And it works. And she goes back and says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Have you ever noticed that phrase? He told me everything I've ever done. He knew her sin, but she still saw it as good news because Jesus met her need. Her story didn't bring shame. It brought joy. And she goes to a village, and what happens in the village? The whole village becomes followers of Jesus. He's in a place he shouldn't be with a woman he's not supposed to be talking to, and the kingdom of God breaks in because of his great love and compassion. And you see Jesus again with a woman caught in adultery. A group of religious men show up to make an example of this sinful woman. And Jesus drives a wedge of compassion between the accusation of the Pharisees. And he does this to create an environment, a space for mercy that transforms her. And he asks her a question. And this is a question that God asks people caught in sin. Where are those who condemn you? And she says, they're not here. And he says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is the beauty of Jesus Christ. I want you to see this. If you've come from a background of incredible sin, Jesus will drive a wedge against the accusation and create a space for mercy so that you can find life and leave your sin and build a future. He loves to do that. He'll do that for you. He has mercy in the struggle and Jesus loves to bring restoration. This past week I was reminded of this Japanese art form called Kintsugi. And Kintsugi basically takes broken things and through the addition of costly metal produces beautiful things. While the general Western consensus on broken objects is that they've lost their value, practitioners and admirers of Kintsugi believe that never-ending consumerism is not a spiritually rewarding experience. The Kintsugi method conveys a philosophy not of replacement, but of awe, of reverence and restoration. The gold-filled cracks of a once-broken item are a testament to its history. The importance of Kintsugi is not the physical appearance, it's the beauty and the importance that people see when looking at the restored dish. And I love this vision. 
These, these dishes now are one of a kind. You can't mass produce this. By artists' care, they're restored and they're more valuable and worthy than they were originally because they've been restored at great cost. And this is some of you. Someone came up to me after the service just weeping and said, I'm one of these bowls. This is my life. Jesus has done this for me. Someone else came up and said, I'm a Kintsugi jar. And you may not know this, but you are surrounded by these people. It's kind of dark right now. You can't see them. But around you are people whose lives were broken by sexual sin, but Jesus has put them back together with his grace and with his love. And I say this so that you understand he can do this for you if you just let him, if you surrender, if you bring it out of darkness and into the light. Jesus can make you a pure and spotless bride. So if you're caught in sin tonight, I just invite you back to the mercy of Jesus. If you're defiant in your sin, I warn you, you are resisting the purposes of God. But if you're humble and broken, Jesus will make you new. Every church has a decision about the kind of church it's going to make. It's either going to concede to the sexual values of its culture or it's going to fight for restoration in the way of Jesus. Jean Vanet again says this, we all have to choose between two ways of being crazy. The foolishness of the gospel and the nonsense of the values of our world. There is no neutrality. You are being formed by the sexual revolution or you're being reformed by the scandalous love of Jesus Christ. And we're making a declaration as a church that we choose the craziness of Jesus' beautiful, restoring love. So my prayer tonight is that that's one person who's been restored by Jesus. At some point, we'll build a culture. This is something we offer to the world. Grace in a culture of failure. This is the good news of sexual formation in the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for your your great kindness, your great compassion. Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come right now and minister your cleansing love and power to the people who are here. Lord, for those who just are covered in shame, I just pray in the name of Jesus, wash it away with your word and with your spirit. Father, those who just feel paralyzed and caught in cycles of sin, they cannot break free from. I just pray, release the power of your spirit. For those with stunted imaginations that have been poisoned by porn, I just pray, wash it away and just release a vision of beauty and other-centered sacrificial love. And Father, I pray that you will form us as your people as a redemptive force of formation and goodness for the flourishing of our generation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close in worship.